Uh, good morning and welcome to week two of Foundations of Faith. Uh, I'm Jordan, if I haven't uh, met you yet. Uh, I'd love to start this morning uh, just in prayer to pray for our time together and then we'll dive right in. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, you are so good and so gracious that you've revealed uh, your word and your truth to us that uh, we get a Open up your word this morning and learn more about who you are, and specifically this morning, who we are as mankind, Father. And in some ways, it's a, it's a disheartening picture as we uh, see Genesis 3 and the fall and the effects of that, but uh, there's also a lot of hope that stems from uh, this week, the end of this week, and, and moving into next week. So thank you for the good news of the gospel and your son, Jesus. And uh, Father, I, I know I'm a bit tired this morning. I don't know how everyone else is coming in this morning. I pray that you would give us uh, energy and focus and endurance to learn um, and be learners this morning and uh, learn from you. So go before us by your spirit. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, uh, if you were here, we went through uh, essentially who is God? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And this week we will be talking about humanity, uh, mankind. And uh, I love actually the structure of this class because really, uh, especially these first three weeks, if I'm going to share the gospel with somebody, and I'll hit this more at the end of our class today, but if I'm going to uh, share the gospel with somebody, the, the basic structure in my mind is I have to first describe who is God and who is man. And, and when I describe those two things, that gives us the problem that creates the need for Jesus, our solution, Right. Uh, so uh, I'll hit that more later, but I think understanding humanity, mankind, things like original sin, total depravity, like what we're going to talk about this morning, are crucial when specifically when it comes to sharing the gospel. So I, I love the structure of this class, especially these first three weeks. Uh, as we start off, I'd love to ask the question, and, and I won't have you answer out loud, uh, but this is always a fun question. Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, how good or bad are humans, right? If 10 is like perfect and one is the, like the worst possible number, obviously you could pick on a scale from one to 10, how, how bad are humans? Uh, and maybe just write a number on a piece of paper or, or put a think of a number in your mind. And, and we're going to walk through this and I'm curious maybe how that number shifts as we, as we walk through this morning. Uh, because specifically for me, uh, when I think of uh, mankind, and, and actually when Jake asked me to teach this class, my mind actually originally went to the other side. I, I, went, I, I lean hard towards that, that one side, because I start thinking of things like original sin and Genesis 3 and the fall. But Jake was really good to pull me back and slow me down and say, actually, let's really start with Genesis 1. And let's talk about man being created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Uh, and I think this is a great place for us to start when we talk about humanity. Uh, we are creatures of God made in the image of God. So Genesis 1 is where we see this starting. Uh, and, and this will be a verse maybe familiar to a lot of you. You can actually start turning to Genesis and put your finger there. We're going to spend a, a little bit of time in Genesis this morning. Uh, but in Genesis 1, verse 26 says this, uh, after uh, God is, uh, or I guess in the middle of, of creation, uh, he says in 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So we are made in the image of God and in the likeness of God. Sproul talked about that in the book. So we are made in his image and his likeness. James 3.9 will also point us towards being made in his likeness. Um, I like Wayne Grudem. Uh, he's a guy, uh, Jake gave some other guys, Erickson and, and Sproul, we'll, we'll highlight those guys a lot. But when I was in my systematic theology class, Wayne Grudem, his book, Systematic Theology, was so helpful for me. Uh, it, was, it was a great resource. And, and I just love how black and white Grudem is. And then he gives, a, uh, when it's areas of gray, he gives his opinion. And, 
it just got to the point, I'm like, I'm ready for a shirt that says, I'm with Grudem in, in my <laughs> seminary class. I'm like, I just whatever he says, like, it's, uh, it's gold. Uh, but one of the things he said is that uh, we are like God and we represent God. So two categories. We are like God and we represent God as we talk about the image of God. So let me talk about that first category. We are like God. Uh, obviously, we are not God. We don't want to go down that theology, but we are like God. We are created, not creator. Sproul would say we are the icons of God, creatures made with a unique capacity to mirror and reflect the character of God. So every person that lives bears the likeness of God. doesn't matter your age, uh, your race, ethnicity. It doesn't matter. Uh, and as we think about us and God, there are a lot of ways that God is like us and, and not maybe not like us. So um, in theology, you hear things like uh, the communicable attributes of God, and then it's the incommunicable attributes of God. Well, the incommunicable, uh, incommunicable attributes of God would be things like he's eternal, right? Well, we as human beings, right, we're not there in the beginning. Like, we are not eternal. But things like communicable attributes of God, like joy and peace and love, those attributes, we share those. We are created by God, and we are like him in those things. We are made in his image. So the image of God distinguishes humans from all other creatures. It is what makes us human. Even if you just compare humans to animals, all right, let's just go through some categories. Um, that, that moral side of humans, there is an inner sense of right and wrong. Romans 2 speaks to us. There is a level of consciousness that we have. We're aware, in general, of what's right and what's wrong and maybe convicted of those things, uh, whether we do right or wrong things. Uh, obviously, there's a spiritual component. God made us spiritual beings, uh, which means that every person has the potential for fellowship with God. We all have the potential for fellowship with God. We are spiritual beings. Uh, the mental component, we're able to reason, to think logically. That's also very much like God. Uh, relationally, we learned last week that God is a relational being. Uh, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, maybe one picture for humans would be marriage. We reflect the nature of God as we think about uh, like marriage and husband and wife. And then things like emotions. We feel we have emotions, love, joy, those type of things. So, uh, as Grudem would say, we are more like our creator than anything else he created. Um, practical implications. What are practical implica- implications of being made in the image of God? Uh, I believe this is why uh, we as humans, and specifically Christians, should have a high value on the dignity and sanctity of life. Okay, uh, Genesis also speaks to this, 9-6. <clears throat> you can maybe just write this down, but this is God speaking to Noah. He says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So essentially, murder is not okay. It's prohibited on the grounds that humankind, we are created in God's image. So all humans have dignity. Uh, And so this informs how we interact with people uh, with respect and dignity and and understanding the sanctity of life. Um, So for example, beginning of life. There's a reason we partner with organizations like Alternatives, because we believe in the the dignity and sanctity of life from the moment of conception, right? Uh, So so that's an area. But go to the other end, um, end of life, hospice care for the, the elderly. Uh, we want to care for all people from, from womb to tomb, right? Like everything in between, we want to care. Um, quality of life, care for the poor. We're talking about this in the book of James right now. Uh, racial injustice, social injustice, slavery, uh, judicial equality. In all of these things, we are saying we are made in the image of God and we want to value the dignity and sanctity of life. Uh, so... Maybe, Sarah, you can flip to the next slide. Yeah, um, Erickson said this. I thought this was really helpful. Every human is God's creature made in God's own image. God endowed each of us with the powers of personality that make it possible for us to worship and serve him. When we are using these powers to those ends, we are most fully what God intended us to be and then are most completely human. In summary, being like God it matters. So that's that first category. Uh, we are like God, but we also represent God. We have a purpose as human beings. Original job in the garden to mirror who God is, to glorify him. They were, Adam was given very specific orders to be a caretaker. 
to rule, have dominion over the earth with kindness and justice, be holy as God is holy, uh, be fruitful and multiply, uh, spread his name in glory. This was the, God, uh, the job given to Adam and Eve. Uh, Erickson would say, our value has been conferred on us by a higher source and we are fulfilled only when serving and loving that higher being. So ultimately, we glorify God when we live in his image the way it was meant to be, as we uh, live like God in the image of God and then represent God in the image of God. So that's, that's image of God. Uh, I'm going to try as we go on throughout this class to uh, take breaks and, and ask questions. Uh, last week, I saw like Jake had a buddy system with Sarah, and I was like, man, I didn't realize we could have a buddy. So... Uh, <laughs> So I asked Mark to be my buddy today. Uh, I'm like, hey, can, can you come in? Uh, I want one. Um, so, and I also, I just really value having a plurality of eldership in any context like this. Um, I want to represent our elder team well. So, uh, and there you can be my buddy as well. So, uh, it, it's all right. It's great. Okay, just Mark, just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, any questions about image of God? Uh, anything I've shared so far? Boy, if it's crystal clear, that's great. Uh, be thinking of questions as we keep going, because uh, I, I want to create space for that. Mark, any thoughts real quick? Image um, of God? I guess just to expand, because like, you did a good job covering the life thing. So like, Genesis covers with Noah on like, actual life. But then James, which we're going to get there in chapter 3 soon, um, it talks about the likeness as well. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers... These things should not be. And so just looking at, like, the way we treat people is because God loves them. God loves his creation, his likeness. And then we are commanded and called to treat likewise Mm. in all situations. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. Perfect. Image of God. So now let's transition. Uh, The problem with the image of God is that something happened and everything changed. As St. Augustine of Hippo would say, Man is a good thing spoiled. So I'm going to read for us. If you want to turn to Genesis 3, uh, I think it would be helpful to just read this passage together. Uh, I'm going to reference it a lot today. And so um, it's always good to just stop and and soak in God's word a bit here. So uh, let me read the passage of the temptation and the fall in Genesis 3. And now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. 
So man sins and then God, after that, lovingly banishes them from the garden so they wouldn't eternally live in that sin. Uh, So we're going to talk about sin. I think it's always really helpful to start by defining sin. Uh, I I remember being in uh, my seminary uh, seminar for this. Rob Warren, who's now the lead um, planter at Doxa Church in Wisconsin, um, said it's really hard to describe sin succinctly because it is so far-reaching and so complex. Uh, It's a relational breach. It's a covenantal rebellion. It's a legal transgression. It involves a lot of emotional pain, such as uh, shame and disgrace, and it ultimately points to death, right? There's just, it's very complex. There's a lot going on. Uh, Here's a couple definitions from Grudem and Erickson. Grudem says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act attitude or nature. So contradicts God's holiness. Uh, Erickson's definition, sin is any evil action or evil motive that is in opposition to God. Simply stated, sin is failure, failure to let God be God and placing something or someone in God's rightful place or supremacy. Um, Jen Wilkin says it this way. I think this is good. Sin is choosing to rival God instead of reflect God. So if we're going to go back to the image of God, we're choosing to rival God instead of reflect God. Uh, my favorite succinct definition would be, uh, like there, there's something in that word sin that, that, that points us towards um, missing the mark. Just missing the mark. And not like, oh shoot, it was a mistake. I accidentally missed the mark. It's like, no, no, I actively chose the wrong mark. Right? So if Uh, For example, uh, marriage, uh, what's the mark of marriage? Like, what's the center target? Well, the mark that God has given us in uh, marriage is one man plus one woman for a lifetime, right? So anything outside of that mark would be sin. So that's why divorce is described as sin in the Bible, because it's one man plus one woman for a lifetime. So anything outside of that mark uh, would be sin, I think the main thing that we have to understand when it comes to sin is there is a weight and a gravity to sin, right? There are massive, implica- massive implications when it comes to our sin. One simple observation that comes from Genesis 3 uh, is that God is not to blame for sin. So sin came through the willful, voluntary choice of man. I think that's really good to distinct because... Uh, yeah, I think people can get that one mixed up. This isn't like, oh, like God is responsible for the sin in the world. It's like, we have to remember this was the willful, voluntary choice of mankind, and that has led to horrible ripple effects uh, throughout mankind. I think one imagery, this, I, maybe, I, I don't know if this is the right to connect these dots, but this is like helpful imagery for me. Uh, when it comes to sin, that's like infected us. I, I think of uh, actually Numbers 21. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I can just read this to you. But essentially, the, God's people are complaining and rebelling against God in the wilderness. And then God sends poisonous snakes that it bit them so that many Israelites died. And so they, the Israelites, they come to Moses and say, we have sinned by uh, speaking it against God and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. Moses interceded for the, the people, and then ultimately Moses uh, is called to hold up a bronze snake, and if they look at the snake, then they're, they're healed. And uh, if you didn't know this, this is actually the key that unlocks John 3. Uh, so right before the famous passage, John three sixteen, it talks about Moses and the snake. So uh, this is the key for that. But the reason I mention all that is because I think of, of those people. It's like they had, those people had bitten by the snake. They had, because of their sin, there was like venom flowing through their veins. There was like no cure until God provided the cure of like, just look at the snake and you will be healed. I, I love thinking of that imagery of, it, it's just like flowing through our veins, like since the day we were born. This is the implication of Genesis 3. Uh, Romans five twelve says that, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. So uh, Sproul would say that Adam and Eve decimated all mankind and that we are sinners in Adam. Okay, so there's some important distinctions here. Uh, Through one person's sin, all became sinners, right? Adam was our representative, which means we inherited Adam's guilt and his corruption and depravity. So you want to write those two categories down. We, We inherited Adam's guilt, 
which means uh, Ephesians 2 verse 3 would say that we are uh, by nature, by our sin nature, born into this world, children underneath God's wrath. We, we inherited his guilt and we also inherited his corruption or depravity. We are conceived in sin, we are dead in sin, and we are slaves to sin. Uh, Gruden would say that God thought of us as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. So I think, um, I think a fair pushback to something like this is uh, maybe the question, well, why am I wrapped up in Adam's sin? Right? People will ask you that. Why? Like, he did it, not me. Why, why am I born in this world with his guilt? Uh, and I think it's helpful, again, as, as we dive further into humanity and humankind, to, re- to remember and remind ourselves that we are also human, uh, and we would have done the same thing as Adam did and have done it in our own sin, right? Uh, that, that language of like, I can't believe Adam did that. I would never do that would be pride in our lives, right? To, to say that type of thing, we would have done the, the, the same thing. And so we are wrapped up in Adam's sin. Adam did what we would all do and we did it with him. So God rightly imputed Adam's guilt on us. Anything you would add to that, Mark? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the problem isn't so much that we sin, but that we are born sinners with a sin nature. Guys, I think this is a really important d- distinction to make. So David would say in Psalm 51.5 that indeed I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. That's a good verse to know. Psalm 51.5. I was guilty when I was born. We inherited Adam's guilt, and I was sinful when my mother conceived me, maybe speaking to that depravity. David doesn't think of himself as one who sins, but rather as a sinful person. Uh, DeYoung would say that uh, sin is not just something we do when we follow bad examples, it's who we are in our very nature. Um, So I was listening to uh, a podcast, um, Knowing Faith, uh, Village Church, Uh, pumps out this podcast. It's really helpful. Um, So uh, this is Matt Chandler's church. It has people like Jen Wilkin and JT English on it. And in it, they were talking about this exact thing. They were talking about uh, original sin, total depravity, these type of things. Uh, And and they said it's helpful to think of sin as uh, nature and action. Okay, so I think when we talk about sin, we typically talk or think about actions. Like you sinned yesterday but God has forgiven you. You're, you ask for forgiveness for your sin that happened yesterday or this morning or whatever, which, which is true. That is an action. But when we're talking about original sin, total depravity, these type of things, uh, we're talking, yes, about sin as action, but we also need to talk about sin as nature. So Augustine and Pelagius, um, one of the infamous debates in church history, Augustine, one of his arguments in here is that we, we need to view ourselves in the lens of our sin nature, that at the core being, at our, the core of our being, we are rebels. So sin is nature that flows into action. Um, and I think a lot of people, um, when it comes to sin, will think of maybe external circumstances and say, uh, but this happened to me and that happened to me. And I, I, I think in a lot of ways that, that can be true, that those external forces can lead to, to sin. And, uh, and although a lot of horrible things have happened to people, I think it's a great reminder in this to remember that our greatest problem is internal, not external. Does that make sense? We are sinners not because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. I think that was in Sproul's but I think that was in your reading. Like, it's a great one to underline. We are sinners not because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. It's this interplay of nature and action. We are born sinners. Sin has infected us. That, that, that venom's flowing through our veins. And we are therefore born as children underneath God's wrath. Again, Ephesians 2, 3. And this leads us into total depravity. Uh, now, I'm going to transition into total depravity, but do you have any questions so far about original sin? Do we have any uh, idea of the time frame that we're talking about here after Adam and Eve were created? How long did this take before the original sin? Um, do you want to speak to it, Mark? I, we, we don't know, ultimately. Um, 
the Bible doesn't give us that timeline. So I think I'm sure a lot of theologians have some guesses, but I don't think I could distinctly say, yeah, like this was the timeline. So I think one thing to add in on sin that'll help go into human depravity. So like when we're talking about missing the mark, so like in Hebrew, there's about seven different words that we would think of more as sin. Like you see them sometimes in English, like it'll be translated iniquity. And these are all very different, distinct things in their mind, even though it's all under the category of sin. But then when we get to the New Testament, um, sin is the word hamakia, which comes from Greek tragedies, which we all had to read in school at some point. Um, But that is talking about the fatal flaw or the tragic flaw. It's going to be the thing that is the downfall at the end um, that causes that. And so Shakespeare, like in Macbeth, like you're reading through it, ambition, an internal thing, is ultimately what's going to cause his downfall. And so the words used a little different in Christian literature, but you look at it, the original sin is something that is ultimately going to cause the downfall in us. It's going to drive us away from God, and that's something that's internal and inherent to mm-hmm. us. Yeah, that's really good. It's a good word. Any other thoughts, questions, original sin? Okay, so let's move to human depravity. Uh, so I think a good question is, well, what's the difference between original sin and words like total depravity? How do we distinguish the two? What's the difference? I was talking to Jake about this, and, uh, and he, he said, as you think of original sin, think of uh, the original sin, the, like the event, the first sin. Uh, and then because we are born in Adam, we are engrafted into that first sin, and therefore the effects of the first sin uh, results in total depravity. Right, So original sin is the event of the fall. Uh, in JT English would say total depravity is highlighting the perversity and how perverse we actually are as humans uh, because of the fall. So obviously there's a bit of overlap between the two, um, but that's maybe a, a helpful distinction. So we are made in the image of God, but the sin in the garden led to a tarnishing of who we were intended to be as humans. We know this is true, that the that, 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 the image of God has now been tarnished because of sin. Um, so words that people use are, are human depravity, total depravity. Sproul used the words radical corruption. Um, I think when we hear these words, things like total depravity, I, I want to stop and give some clarity because I think there can be some misunderstanding with this one. Um, because I think sometimes people hear total depravity, and then what they think is that um, that there's no good in, in any humans in any sense, or, or that um, any unbelievers have no sense of uh, good in them. Uh, so what total depravity is not saying is that, um, that every time we're met with some kind of moral decision, we always choose the bad path or, or act as wickedly as we possibly can. This doesn't mean that everybody's now just murdering everybody else. Uh, but as Erickson would say, but it does mean that even the unregenerate person's altruism or, or sense of good always contains an element of improper motive. So total depravity means that sin affects every aspect of our person, that our good acts are not done entirely out of love for God, and that we are completely unable to extricate ourselves from this sinful condition. Uh, I remember, <clears throat> so this actually was a recent light bulb for me, and I don't know why I hadn't ever connected these dots, but... Uh, we were reading uh, a book for uh, like first-year staffers um, called Grace Defined and Defended by Kevin DeYoung. If, if any of this, <clears throat> especially this weekend, next week, you have any questions or would like more clarity, that's, that's a great book um, that unpacks uh, essentially this theology. Um, but I, I remember, I, I think, I, I know for, for me even, I kind of thought that way when it came to total depravity. Again, when I hear that question of like, how bad are humans... As I learn more theology, I just want to like crank the wheel to, as hard as I can to like this side. Uh, but he said something, and this was so good and helpful for me to muse on uh, in the book, that I just want to read this to you. Um, the doctrine of total depravity is sometimes misunderstood to mean that people are as bad as they can possibly be, like I just said. But the total, the total, is with respect to the extent of the depravity, not to the degree. So this is what I mean. Uh, it, it's the extent of the depravity. Think, yeah, your mind, will, heart, emotions. Like it touches every part of your being, like total. But it, it doesn't 
uh, point to like the degree, like total, as in like all of us are now like murderers and like acting as possibly and uh, like as possibly wicked as we could. Um, there's no part of us that is left untouched by sin, mind, body, will. Every part is affected, and so sin is rooted in the core of who we are. Uh, DeYoung would go on to say, All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and enslaved to sin. So it affects every part of our being, so us, our, our total being, but it also affects every person who's ever lived. Okay, so total depravity also has that angle to it. Uh, so Romans three ten through 12, I, I would write maybe this passage down. This is a, a great one again, if you're trying to unpack total depravity with somebody. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. That's not a quote from a book. That's a quote from the Bible, right? That's, that's what God's word says. So I think it's very important for us to lean into those things and hear those things. <clears throat> so the image of God has been marred by sin and humanity is now driven by selfishness and self-rule. That's kind of our driving factors. And because of original sin and our sin nature, um, essentially like you let go of the wheel and we do, we drift towards uh, Rebelling against God, diving deeper and deeper into our sin. That, that kind of encapsulates this, this idea of um, total depravity. So I'm going to, in a second, add an asterisk to that. But let me stop there. Uh, any questions about total depravity? Or again, original sin, total depravity, any of those things? I'm curious how this is going to, how this is all changing your number in your head. Again, keep thinking of those things. Mark, what would you add? Anything? You got a lot of good stuff covered there. I think one like practical application coming out of this, so that you can <clears> thinking more about the <throat> number in your head, is that like we talk about total depravity and making sure you get it not utter depravity that you wrote in there. Because if I served overseas as a, doing missions, and there you're looking for the redemptive analogy. You're looking at what is in the culture is redeemable because they're not utterly depraved as in there is no godly thing there. Like you can think of like honor, like they had a great understanding of honor that they're going to be corrupted in that, but that doesn't mean that they cannot, they will always go against what God is teaching. Hmm. And so we we're trying to look even in depravity that people are a corrupted image of God, not a destroyed image of God. Hmm. And that goes back to our original thing about how we should love humanity. Right. Yep. That's good. So if you can feel there's a bit of a tension here that's kind of surfacing, and I'll, I'll maybe create a bit more tension. Uh, so let me give a, a, like an asterisk. So we talk about total depravity, um, but although sin has infected our world, we're not, again, all completely evil. Uh, and we know, we know this is true. Human beings have the capacity for good, even if they haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We see that around us, like the benevolence of people and doing good and wanting to do good things. Uh, the theological term for this would be common grace, right? So we hear of things like saving grace, but there is a level of common grace. So although the fall has implications for original sin and depravity of man, again, like what you're talking about, Mark, it didn't remove the image of God from people. So the image is broken, not eliminated, distorted, not lost. Uh, like you're saying, it goes back to that dignity, sanctity of life that we were talking about earlier. So we still have that mind, heart, will, uh, and a lot of these are evidences of, of God's image and his grace in our life. So again, we, we as human beings, we tend to know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, and we tend to have a general sense and value for doing good things. I think that's true of human beings. Uh, so people still do good things. We see this common grace in mankind. Uh, I think the problem is often... Uh, People are doing the right things with wrong motivations. Maybe that's the distinction that we can make here. Uh, it's not to glorify God. They're not doing it to glorify Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the right thing with the wrong uh, motivations. So that's, that's common grace. Any quick questions about common grace? And does that make sense, that distinction, that asterisk? 
Okay, we're doing great on time right now. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm maybe breaking the rules for this equipping context. But um, I would love for you guys to go around your tables and share what is the number you originally put down and why. And then if, you, if now hearing all of that, if you could change your number, what would you change it to and why? Does that make sense? So just shoot around your tables. Uh, what was your original number you had either thought in your head or wrote down, and why did you put that? Like, how bad is mankind? And then, now having heard all of that, what would you change and why? Okay? Go ahead and talk amongst your tables real quick here. All right, we can start bringing it back together here. Thanks for letting me break the rules a bit, but I think it's helpful to, to wrestle with some of these things. So maybe just let's hear real briefly from each table. What were some of the things you guys talked about here? Um, okay. We, well, we talked about that putting a number on it was hard. Yep. So then we also mm-hmm. talked about the difference between um, utter and total depravity. Sure, and sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. That's good. Anything you guys would add? Say differently? Disagree? Well, our numbers were all kind of on the low end of the spectrum. Okay. So, when you think of the Romans part where no one is righteous, mm-hmm. yeah. that we're all filled with sin, Right. how do you measure that to the goodness of God, being in the goodness of God? Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. It drives you this way. Yep. Good. How about you guys? Anything else? We started low and this redeemed it a little bit. Okay. <laughs> sure. Like sure. Um, because God does give us a will and yep. um, able, we're able to make choices and we can make choices and use those for good. Mm. That's good. Anything else? It's, it's an interesting question to ask people. Uh, so this is one of the questions we'll have people ask in our Theology of the Gospel, Gospel 101 uh, class as part of the survey questions. And I think what you'll find, and if you think of it, just ask people, like, hey, on a scale from 0 to 10, 1 to 10, whatever, like how bad or good is humanity? Uh, and just see what kind of answers you get. I, I, think it'll, I think you'll find people actually end up on the higher end of scale, you know, um, especially, I mean, maybe uh, if it's unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus. Uh, when it comes to, like, me thinking through this, I think, maybe you guys said it, yeah, it is hard to put a number to this one because I actually do think of this as, uh, and I kept it very broad for a reason, but I would want to dial in the question, like, well, well, what exactly are you saying? Are you saying, like, mankind in reference to God? Because then it's, like, zero or, like, negative a thousand. Or what, you know what I mean? Like, then, okay. Uh, or... Um, or, or do you add in this component of, of common grace? Are, are we talking about, like, humans in general, total depravity, but not, like, the worst we could possibly be? There is a level of people wanting to do good, like you guys are talking about. Does that, does that add some numbers to it or whatever? So I think it's just a, it's a good thing for us to wrestle with and, and be able to articulate. Um, it's not so much the number, but the why. I think that's helpful uh, for us to distinguish, especially as we're getting to classes like these. Uh, if someone were to ask you that question, like, how, how bad is mankind or how good is mankind? I, I think walking through some of those distinctions that we're talking about here can be actually really helpful. Um, so uh, let's keep rolling here. Uh, I think we need to be aware of common grace. But ultimately, we also have to realize that common grace is not sufficient or effective for revealing Christ, for faith, and for repentance, for salvation. It is not sufficient for, for that. Uh, or maybe another theological t- 
term we can use is like general revelation versus more of a specific general general specific revelation general versus specific so um the bible talks about creation uh crying out that it, that written in our hearts we're kind of just there's this like sensor awareness that god is real roman the beginning of romans talks about that uh, but common grace general revelation are not sufficient to save us from our sins uh, which again puts uh, it, it helps us put the asterisks as we're talking about these things but but also helps us go back to the doctrine of original sin and total depravity and maybe the the hopelessness we feel as we walk into this world or like well what do we do you know what I mean like this is this is a big problem uh, uh, Again, I, I, I think when it comes to um, the awareness of the gospel, the more I realize how awesome, like last week, how awesome God is, how uh, not like me in so many ways he is, and perfect and holy he is, the deeper I, I walk in that theology, but then the deeper I walk in this theology and awareness of my sin, and I'm, I'm like, I don't even realize how how much of a sinner I am. Like, there's so many things, right? Uh, And I continue to walk deeper into these. Like, as I walk deeper into both of those theologies, the need for the Savior becomes greater and greater in my mind. The gospel becomes bigger. We we walk deeper into the gospel. So this is why this theology matters. It really does matter. Like, walking deeper into these waters matters. Um, Because God's justice and wrath are are very real. They're... um, like, it's not, it's not something that's kind of out there. This is in Scripture. And uh, I was actually, so this is funny, I was reading for Sproul for this class, and I, I got mixed up pages and chapters somehow. I don't know if you did that, because the, the stinking chapters are so short that I started reading whatever the opposite was. And so I'm like, this is great. These are a lot of awesome attributes of God. But I was reading it for this section. I'm like, this talk, it doesn't talk about man at all. Um, <laughs> took me a bit to figure it out. But then I found some gold nuggets in there, so it was great. Uh, But one of the things Pearl said is that God is at all places at all times, and he knows all things, which should terrify unbelievers. Um, People cannot hide from God. Their sins are exposed. Like Adam, they seek to hide. However, there is no corner of the universe that God's gaze, either in love or wrath, fails to reach. So we are judged on God's holiness, not relative to other human beings. That, that is a mistake that I do think people will make. And if you get into this type of question with people, I think it's worth having that conversation. Because uh, I think people won't articulate it, but really they start thinking, but I'm not as bad as that person. Like, can this be a sliding scale? Does, does the professor or teacher get a grade, grade on a curve here? And it's like, no, no, no. We are judged in accordance to God's holiness, not to like our neighbor next door. And because of our sinful nature relative to God's holiness, perfect justice would demand punishment for our sins. If, um, if God didn't punish us for our sins, he wouldn't be a righteous God. There would be a problem if he just let everything go without any kind of justice, right? Um, by sinning, we have placed ourselves on the wrong side of God and have, in effect, become his enemies. This is what Romans 6.23 is talking about when it says the wages of sin is death, uh, Death, think physical, spiritual, eternal, death. Um, what we earn, what we deserve for our sin, for our sin nature and our sin action is death. Uh, DeYoung would say, as spiritually dead men, women, and children, we are totally unable to return to God or reform our nature. This means we need more than divine assistance or cooperating grace to be saved. We need sovereignly administrated resurrection from the dead. Um, Sproul would say we are both unable and unwilling to choose righteousness. We are passionately rebellious as human beings without the intervening work of God. We are sinners in need of redemption. So that, it points us forward to next week, right? We're going to get to salvation next week. I won't steal too much of Cody's thunder. It's not next week, is it? It's just for clarity. It's in, in two weeks because of spring break. So it's the 29th. The 29th. Because of the students. Right. Yes. We love you students. 
Come back. Uh, so if you're in this room by yourself next week, now, now you know why. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's great. Uh, so that's, that's next week's salvation, but I, I want to like try to set up the softball for Cody as much as possible. Uh, he'll knock it out of the park. But, um, but I do think, again, understanding humanity, depravity, original sin, sets up the problem and helps us see our need for a Savior, right? Um, I'd like to get into just some practical implications to, to wrap up our time together, but any questions with, with any of that so far? I want to keep stopping to ask. Come on, open up that can of worms with George. I have, I have a lot of, like, random questions. Yeah. throw at you if you're, like, wanting to talk to I do. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll, then we'll do the can of worms. Jake loves and hates you. I'm like, okay, what about that? <laughs> um, okay, so I'm still wrestling with common grace and understanding uh, your definition. And I think I might be getting it confused with another term. Sure. As I start talking, spit out the word. Yes. So we are still able to do good. Sure. Yep. You're you're saying common grace is the fact that even though we're totally depraved, we're still able to do good. Right. Like the rain falls on both the righteous and unrighteous. Right. right? Like that's what I'm thinking. So I think it was in the um, book that he referenced, the grace. Sure. Sure. Even the unbelievers still receive good. I mean, the sun shines, right. yep. rains come, yep. they have shelter. You know, like it's not like they're totally destroyed because right. of their sin. Because right. they haven't received grace or received salvation. Um, so I guess the, the thing that I'm still trying to understand is even though we still can do good, I think you were, you were kind of wrestling Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk to unbelievers, it's like, well, I am a good person. How do you explain that to someone who is just like, well, I'm a good person? Mm. And how, how do you how do you really explain to them, like, yeah, you are good and you can do good, right? But you still are a sinner, right? Um, well, that's where I mean, that's where you start going to like. James, right? I mean, that, to me, that's where when you hit James two ten, where it says, "For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all." To me, that that's where I would go. Where it's it's you want to be aware of the asterisks, but I think for more people, it, like swinging the pendulum and helping them see this side of the fence is is probably more helpful in a lot of ways. And um, yes, we are able and have capacity to to do good in some different ways. But again, uh, there's a nature, there's a wrong motivation even within our good. It's just been twisted. Um, it's not to glorify God. It's selfishness, self-rule. Like, like that, that's the root and core of it. Um, so I, um, I, I lean towards going that route with people. I think that can be helpful. Anything you would add or so like do differently? Looking at that, I think you need to walk through what is a good person. Because if you're talking 50% good versus 50% bad, Maybe they actually are. I'm not going to argue with that because ultimately it doesn't meet God's standards, so we got to go to God's standards. And like what Katie was sharing at the All Leaders meeting about like something, of, you have a print, you have all these specifications of what it has to be, and then in engineering it's pass or fail. Like mm-hmm. you either have all of those met or you don't. And that's where they can look at it like, actually, I don't meet that. That's like having a cell phone. Like, oh, my cell phone's good because it has a battery that works, but it actually can't make calls, it doesn't have the internet on it, like, it's not actually doing the function, even though it has some things that are good, that are useful, but it's not actually what it's created to be. And mm. so helping them to see a good person is one that fulfills completely the law, and they aren't that. Yeah, mm. yeah. that's really good. The definition of good is, is probably the helpful distinguishing factor. But if you're talking to a non-believer and you go to Scripture, Right. So yeah. your compass is the Bible. You refer back to God. Mm-hmm. If they're a non-believer, their compass isn't even in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I would go to Romans two, where it's actually written to so the entire. Back to the Bible, though. But no, conceptually. Okay. Yeah. Where yeah. it's talking about like they know what is right and wrong. They have a conscience. So even in their own, 
to like when I was overseas, like they knew what it was like to honor their mother and father, and they would know that they did not do that. So they are not even living up to their own standard of right and wrong, and they can recognize that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, it, that's where I think common, they would argue with the common grace part is, I think bad people do good things. Sure. I think you can take the baddest of people, and they probably have done something good. Right, sure, totally. Their family or did something that we would have to agree is a good thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. The thing is to get them to see the larger picture mm -hmm. beyond themselves, mm -hmm. which is that, that uh, selfishness or the self-rule thing. Yes. They live by their own rules right. rather than right. the bigger rules. Right? Yep. Okay. How do you explain the concept of all good is done through selfish reasons every Um, sure, yeah. Um, I, I think it, it probably goes back to how we define selfishness, maybe. Because to me, I would probably... <laughs> anything that's not glorifying God, I would define as... like I would, I would have two categories, you know, for the purposes of glorifying God and everything else. So maybe selfishness isn't the best word for it as you're interacting with people, but it's either we... we we do these things for the purposes of glorifying God, or or we don't. And, and in our mind, we know that means that like it's, it's an inward-centered. Like this, this is actually for me, for me to feel better. Or even doing good works, people will do it so that like they feel better. Giving to charities, those type of things. They're, if they're, they're apart from Christ, that motivation again can be twisted. And so I think it's helping people see those two categories and going from there. It, it's probably not maybe the best to say you're a selfish person <laughs> and then like try and work backwards from there. I think I'd create those two categories. So. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think Ernie said it at the all leaders. He's like, you want the gospel to be the one offending? <laughs> Not like you and your words. So. This is such a difficult concept because like looking at what is selfishness like in terms of the Bible because like John Piper and Desiring God essentially would say it's all right to be selfish. Like, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him abundantly. So, like, we should be looking forward to our own enjoyment is what he has in that book. I'm not always behind everything that he says in that concept there, but, like, you can get into some really nasty thorns trying to define what is selfish in a person's sin struggle. And so, ultimately, we got to point it back to what Jordan is saying. Mm -hmm. like, is this glorifying God? Mm -hmm. Because they're either glorifying God or they're not. Because if they have no desire to glorify God, it makes it really easy to point mm -hmm. that out. Yep. All right, let me keep those questions rattling on your mind. We've got 15 minutes, so we'll see what we can do here. Um, I want to walk towards a bit of like practical implications. Um, so, I, and I've just separated by these categories. That, that first word, like justification, the implications for justification, for, for saving faith. Again, I think this really matters when it comes to uh, even just sharing the gospel with people. Um, so again, when I'm thinking about sharing the gospel with people, right, like I, I have to start with these two categories. Right, like man and God. And I... Like last week, if you can, uh, the things you can remember from last week and what you learned about God, like if you can articulate those things to people, I think that's really helpful as you're sharing the gospel. Um, but I think you also have to be able to articulate this side of things, right? That like God is perfect and holy. He's creator. He's good, right? And even if you want to like Mark, this will maybe go towards your question. Like God is perfect and holy. If you want to go number scales, you could say he's 10 out of 10. And this is where like, I think even for, for people who wouldn't believe that God's word is inerrant and, and true and all those things. Again, it goes a bit to like Romans two, like the basics of like the 10 commandments typically written on most people's hearts. Like we, we can, People typically know that stealing's wrong. Like, it's illegal. Like, <laughs> most people can, can, get, can get there. And so if you can help people to see things like, well, have you, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied about anything? Um, and you can even go as far as, like, have you ever murdered anybody? It's like, well, I'm safe there. 
Like, well, actually, Jesus said, even if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, like that's, that's murder in your heart. Or, or same thing with, with adultery and lusting in your heart. Like you can, you can cr- pretty quickly pe- get people to a spot of like, okay, I'm like, I like haven't done any of those things perfectly. Like if you can just like walk through those type of things with people, I, again, I think you want to try and help people see the gap. The, the goal in, in the practical implication of sharing the gospel is seeing that God is, is perfect and holy and that man is passionately rebellious and totally depraved. If you can help people get to that spot, then it's like, okay, then it's like now you, you see the, the need for a savior. Uh, again, I, I, I wonder in Western Christianity if we have started to preach the cure so much or talk about the cure without explaining the problem. Like people, people don't desire a cure until they, they feel like they've like, I've got this disease. I need a cure. And helping people understand. So I'm not talking um, like hellfire and brimstone. I'm just, I'm just trying to paint the picture for people to see the gap and the need for Jesus to come. Does that make sense? I, I think that's a, a helpful distinction to make. I, I think it's very unloving to not share this side, this side of the the diagram with people and helping people see uh, that we are depraved and we are very much not holy, not like God and desperate for somebody to come and save us. How many people is it easy to share that left side? Because I know, like, for me, it's even difficult. Yeah. Knowing that that's true, it's yep. really difficult to share that sometimes. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard even in the Western culture to even describe the right side. Mm. Yeah. And maybe even more so in the church, you mm. know, culture of like, well, God's my friend, you know, and it's yeah. like, oh, like, we need to have a greater, higher view of God, too, mm. mm-hmm. so that we can recognize that need for a Savior. Right. Than just like, oh, I can talk to him whenever I want. Totally. He's my friend. Yep. Um, I think it, we've just kind of, like, closed that gap and, like, we're good and God's my friend. Mm. Hmm. And in a similar light, like to, to reconcile both those things and to say, like I'm, I'm reading through J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, right now, which in all honesty, for the longest time, guys, was the book I recommended the most that I hadn't read yet. Because <laughs> it was, <laughs> I was hearing like Paul and all these godly people, it's like knowing God. I'm like, okay, I'll tell people. <laughs> I should probably read this book. Um, so I'm almost finished with it, but uh, he, he's got a lot of beautiful um, theology in there, the the, the doctrine of adoption is so awesome. He unpacks that. But one of the things he unashamedly unpacks is God's wrath. Because I think he understands it's uncomfortable to talk about God's wrath. You know what I mean? Like that there, there are two categories. It's the sheep and the goats. It is those who are righteous and those who are in Christ and those who are not. Um, and, and it's helping people see that we are, one, not holy, that we are on this side. And two, we deserve God's wrath. And it's a righteous, it's like a good wrath. It's justice, right? If we let, if, if someone goes and murders somebody and people are like, no justice needed. That guy can keep, like, keep doing his thing. He's fine. You know, like there's something in us. We desire justice, but it's hard when that justice is heading your way when you're not in Christ yet, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I do think, again, I, I think you're right, Mark. I think unpacking this side and helping people see, like, the selfishness, that side of things, or they don't understand the Bible, I, it, it, can be, it can be a challenge, but I'm telling you, it's not impossible, and God is the one who opens their eyes anyway. That, God will help them see by His Spirit. He's the one that's going to work to help them see, like, oh, I, that conviction of sin, that Holy Spirit's work. Um, so... So that would be one practical implication, justification, sharing the gospel. I would also share, I would also say sanctification, um, being progressively made more and more like Jesus, or if you want to go back to our first category, more and more in the likeness of God, in the image of God. As we become more like Jesus, we restore more and more of what was in is broken. Um, I think the problem that we'll see is, um, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are still in this world, and there's a battle between flesh, that, that old self, and, and spirit, and holiness and righteousness. Um, again, I think it's always remember, good to remember, when you are in Christ, when you sin, your legal standing with God has not changed. Your union in Christ has not changed. Um, you're still adopted. Um, 
But I do think with that, that battle, battle of flesh and spirit, as you like give into sin, that uh, grieving of the Holy Spirit, that there's some brokenness in the communion with God and your relationship with God. It's not as rich uh, maybe as when you're walking in step with the Spirit. Uh, I think this is a great reminder that our flesh, like that battle is real, right? Because of total depravity, humanity. Although we are in Christ, we are still in this world and um, that, that, that natural, like Paul tries to articulate that in Romans, like uh, that, that, that battle between flesh and blood, that, that staying in the fight and walking in the spirit. Um, so justification, sanctification, and I think the, the other beautiful thing is glorification. Like if, if I can come full circle on this whole thing, it's, uh, man, when Christ returns, God is going to restore us to that image of God, the, the garden of Eden, mankind, new heavens, new earth. And I think it's a, a beautiful hope we have that this isn't like on a trajectory that's like plummeting the rest of our lives. It's actually like, yeah, we're in this fight till Jesus comes back, but then he is restoring all things uh, at the end of Revelation. So I think there's a beautiful hope that lies even in the midst of our humanity, um, if I can bring that full circle. So. Anything you'd add with I mean, I guess this is just like a combined practical implication, but like we just had God, we have community, and salvation is coming up. And these are the reasons why I can go to bed at night and sleep, because there are other viewpoints, and to me it would be hard to go to bed because we recognize that it is God's work, it is the Spirit changing them, and so that this isn't a burden that we as humanity carry ourselves Mm. to convert that person that's around us. Yes, yep, amen. All right, we got about six minutes for questions or any last thoughts, comments. I'll be honest, I, I, I ran into Jake before this. He's like, you feeling good with Foundations of Faith? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I just never know. Like, I know when I study for a sermon, like, what a what I need to put on a manuscript or sermon notes to get to, like, about 35-ish minutes. I'm like, this is, I don't know. <laughs> like, sometimes you, you got all this content, and you try to drink from the fire hose as best you can, and see what time you got left. So we got a little bit of time, so go ahead, Tom. Page 155, point number three says, total depravity is not utter depravity. We are not as wicked as we could possibly be. Point number one on page 154 says, humanism sees sin as the edge or periphery of human life. It considers human beings to be basically good. Isn't point three basically just a modification of point one? It's basically a humanistic stance, maybe not quite as large as point one. So we're basically talking about how good people are uh, versus sin. I don't have the book in front of me. Does that make sense? I think the difference, so um, 1.1 and then what other depravity is are the two ends of the spectrum. And the question is, do people have the capacity? So number one says, no, they are. It's not just they have the capacity. They actually exist as that. Um, Number three is pointing out um, utter depravity says they're not good and they don't even have the capacity to do good. They couldn't do a single good thing if they tried. Mm. Whereas this is trying to point out that saying total depravity just means your mind, your emotions are corrupted so that, that you will sin in every single way, your mind, body, soul, throughout your life, but that doesn't mean each action is a sin. Like me seeing Jordan today and deciding not to kill him, that wasn't a sin by making that mental Mark, I love that example. I just love that. Just your mere existence is a sin, like every breath you take is a sin. So it's, it's trying not to hit clear on the extreme, because that extreme doesn't value life. Essentially, like, if God's already called you and saved you, like, you have value. If you don't, well, hopefully God does, but you have no value right now. That's good, Mark. That's good. Any other questions, thoughts? I don't know if this will make sense, but something yeah. I've been struggling with in talking to non-Christians is that yeah. I, I do feel like they have a better sense of hope for like the world. Like oftentimes, I'm talking about the world is just going to hell in a handbasket, and <laughs> they're much more hopeful than I am. Sure. I'm wondering, is that a lack of faith in me and what God can do? Should I have more hope for our future? I think I hope for eternity. Right. But right. apart from life with Christ, 
when I die, there's no hope, right? Yeah. So, but yeah. I feel like I'm Debbie Downer compared to sure. my non-Christian friends. We're like, I think our kids are going to make a great difference. And sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you, Daniel. I know that's right yeah yeah there's some good there's good perspective in there and there's there's a a tension to feel because at the end of the day we know revelations coming and like uh signs great tribulation like all those things we're very aware of where our earth in general is headed and then the new heavens new earth like our hope should be in that um so i think there's a reality there that we always have to have in perspective but i also think you know uh, Jesus said to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done. To like continue to restore uh, the image of God in people and um, for people to come from, from death to life spiritually and um, do a redeeming work in our, in our lives and in our culture. Um, so I, I do think there is a, a component of like hopefulness in that where uh, it's like, yeah, we want to continue to press forward um, in the battles in front of us, but as we look at like maybe big picture war, it's like we, we know where we do have that perspective. And I think we need to have that. But I, I, I think the, the thing for maybe people you're interacting with, there is like a level of hope while we're still living, but then like, it's like, well, then what? Maybe yeah. <laughs> is like the question, you know what I mean? Well, is there hope for eternity? It's the Francis Chan illustration where he's got like a, a, a rope that goes off the end of the stage and he's got like one red piece of tape where he's like, this is, like our lives, and then that is eternity. Like, where's your focus, and and what do you, what do you, how do you, how you think about the rest of that rope determines how you live in this red tape, um, which should give us hope, but also awareness that that red tape will end for our lives and the world as we know it. As God, Jesus will bring you new heaven, new earth. It's a great question, though. Daniel, I'll give you one thing that you can't hope in because, like, eschatology, millennialism, all of that. Like, there's different views. It's my favorite. I love all of it. But one reason they base it on is though, like you see the verses where love will grow cold and all of that, like you can look at the Western church. One great thing over the last 150 years is that it went from a white Western church to a global church. And so like, Hmm. so in in China and parts of Africa, like they would have the complete opposite perspective of you. Over the last 50 years, like the church has been growing drastically. So that's why, like there is hope in that, like yes. we need to make sure that we're not being too discouraged, but we also need to be vigilant against like what we're seeing as the decay around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's Genesis the tension. Genesis twenty two says, "While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, and cold and winter, the summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So as long as the earth is here, hmm. things are going to stop." Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's good. All right, 10 o'clock on the dot. I'm hyped that we got done on time. So (laughs) just never know. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, take it and time. So thank you guys so much for interacting again. We are off the next two weeks. Enjoy spring break, especially you students. Everybody else is just another week usually. So um, there's that. (laughs) So we'll see you next time, guys. Thank you.